Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. There's a word called kismet. Not quite sure what it means, but what I think it means is sometimes the stars align. And Dan and Danny, as you know, we book our guests months in advance. And months ago, we asked Vinny and Porter to come visit us here to do the podcast. Now, it just so coincides with all the things that both of those guys, as well as Danny Moses, have been talking about ad nauseum. It's sort of the culmination of all these things. So it's amazing that they're with us today. I'll say this, allow me this indulgence, and then we will open it up to the floor. HBO had a wonderful miniseries a few years ago. The name of it was Chernobyl. I encourage you all to watch it. Black and white, wonderfully done. And it was a six-part series, and the final episode took place in the control room of the nuclear reactor at Chernobyl. They were running a test after midnight that night. And there was one guy in charge. Clearly, he was the one making decisions, but he had minions around him. And in order to do that test, they needed to shut down the reactor. So they shut it down. They ran their test. And then they decided that he needed to take the reactor. They needed to bring it back up. So one by one, this gentleman in charge asked the minions to take out control rods. And one by one, they took out the control rods waiting to get a reaction. They weren't relying upon their eyes, what they saw, what they knew, their experience. They were just relying upon and watching one certain thing, and the reaction wasn't happening. One by one, the control rods come out until, guess what? They took out every control rod, much to the chagrin of a lot of those people, but they did it anyway. What wound up happening? Well, guess what? They actually got the reaction they were looking for, But what happened? They weren't able to control that reaction. Subsequently, you had a meltdown. Guy, why do you bring that up? Because these dipshits at the Federal Reserve decided that in order to get the reaction they wanted, in this case, inflation, they were going to remove every single effing control rod. And guess what happened? I know Vinny knew this was going to happen. I know Porter knew this was going to happen. I know Danny knew this was going to happen. They got the reaction they wanted, the reaction being inflation. But guess what, folks? They can't 
effing control it. And that's what we learned this week, Danny Moses. I think that it was a six-part series. I believe that part happened in episode one. So just to clarify, I don't think it happened in episode six, but we are probably in episode two or three here of the Fed thing. But I want to welcome Vinny and Porter in here today. And like when we had Chanos on here a couple months ago, people added us, oh, market's down. You brought in Chanos, the big shorts. No, we had that plan two months in advance. So for those out there, we're going to let you know we have bulls coming on in months ahead and bears coming on months ahead, and maybe you can trade accordingly. But this is a great place to start, guys, because we've talked about this a long time. We bore witness to the Fed printing money and what that meant, and now we're dealing with the draining. And to me, the most striking thing about that press conference yesterday, and I actually said going into it that people would clam onto something that he would say that would be deemed to be dovish. It's not that he doesn't have control. He has no effing idea what's going on. And so he could have done 50, 75, or 100. It wouldn't have mattered. The one comment he made to me that was most striking was that he admitted, he says, I guess I'm going to watch some financial conditions. I'm watching other things other than just unemployment. But the guidance that they gave, the economic projections, make no sense. There's no soft landing. They try to portray a soft landing. So anyway, with that, I want to turn it over to you guys. Welcome to the show and get your initial thoughts on that out of the gate. Porter. I didn't know Guy was going to use that reference, but that was beautiful. Wasn't that beautiful? That's why they pay him the big bucks. But it speaks to, and you know, I want you guys to talk. This is not about me. But interesting, we had Richard Fisher on the show, Fast Money, earlier this week. My statement to him was... The wealth gap in this country has never been wider. You screwed people on the way in effectively, and those same people are getting screwed on the way out. I put that to the Fed. I'm not asking you to comment. And then I said the following. I said, it's not about being wrong. If you watch Fast Money over the last 15 years, I'm wrong all the time. I have no trouble with people being wrong. What I have problem with is hubris. The hubris to beg for inflation and then to think that once you get it, you'll somehow be able to control it. That's my biggest problem. He addressed it, I think, off camera or off air, he would have said something different. But that, to me, is the problem. The fact that these assholes, I'm choosing that word, thought they could somehow control something they have no control over, Porter. So, Guy, you said it correctly. I mean, they can't control this, right? And the problem is, is this world has never been more financialized. And we've put more and more debt into the system. And I think that's where Vinny and I really have our expertise in the guts of the financial system. You can find a better tech guy or energy guy, but in terms of financials, and this is what we're dealing with, we're dealing with a balance sheet problem here that the Fed has, and they're, they're going to need to raise rates to control inflation, and they're powerless. And the problem is, is the last tech bubble, they cut rates a lot, and there's no seatbelt right now. They're driving and the car's crashing, and you, you got the Fed, but then you have the BOJ, uh-huh. The Swiss National Bank raised rates? Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. The ECB, BOE, it's everywhere. That's the real problem. That's why I'm, I'm scared. There's so much to go on right now, but I'm going to start and say that I don't spend a lot of time looking at the dot plots. I have a lot of friends who just study it like mad relative. To, who cares? The biggest issue right now, the way I see it, is that the Fed is no longer the panacea for markets. It's not. And I actually think it's a shame that policymakers are sitting on their back and saying, hey, guys at the Fed, you take care of this inflation thing. And the majority of the inflation that we have right now, I think everyone made a mistake using that word transitory. That was completely incorrect. What they should have used was structural. All the inflation issues we have right now are structural. So how are they trying to solve the structural issue? By taking away jobs? by destroying demand. 
I mean, it's as stupid as stupid can be. It's the dumbest economic policy. So the one thing, please don't yell at me. You know how much I hate the Fed. The Fed doesn't have a choice. They follow the rules and the laws of their boss and their boss is telling them to get inflation down. And I guarantee you, when the Fed peeps go home and have a drink, they're yelling at their bosses saying, what in the world do they want me to do? They want me to send this thing into a recession. That's the last thing Powell wants to do, but it's the thing he has to do right now because that's his mandate. You're spot on with this, but you know they're begging for inflation for years. The inflation was right before their eyes. If you were paying attention, which is the cheapest thing you can do, it was right there the entire time. They just didn't acknowledge it. Now, whether they chose not to acknowledge it or just didn't see it, I don't even know what's worse. I happen to think not seeing it is worth, but they didn't acknowledge it either. We were saying on Fast Money, Danny, before we started the podcast, if you just look beneath the surface, there's your inflation. They just didn't have it in the places that they wanted. Now it's rampant. And to your point, they're screwed. So very interesting. Okay, so we're talking about they're hiking into this thing. They're hiking into 40-year low, back to pre-pandemic unemployment. They're hiking into the weirdest inflationary environment we've been in in more than 40 years. Well, you're not suggesting that they go easy now, right? I know you're not. They can't. So they can't. So I guess my point is, if you think about this, the way they combated the 2001 recession and the subsequent bear market and the implosion of the dot-com and and the post kind of Y2K kind of hangover and all that sort of stuff is, yes, Fed funds came down from 6% to 1%, but they didn't expand the balance sheet in a meaningful manner until the financial crisis. And I know Guy and I differ on this in a way. Like, I think TARP and all those other things, they started small, like 200 billion. I mean, these are now we're talking trillions, right? So they avoided, and Guy's going to say to me, well, you can't prove a counterfactual, okay? But we avoided a depression and a full global collapse of our financial system. So then we started adding hundreds of billions that got to over trillions on the balance sheet, right? And then they kept it too easy for too long. And then we had pandemic happens, black swan event, and they throw trillions of dollars in monetary and fiscal at that. Again, avoiding a massive credit situation globally that would have been a depression. So this is where we are. I don't think it's as nefarious as like some people would think. Dan, I know you're going to talk. I've never used that word nefarious. I've never, as a matter of fact, what I've said is history is littered with disastrous outcome born of good intentions. I don't think these are nefarious people at all. I just think they don't know what the F they're trying to accomplish. Porter and I were talking about this earlier today. The one time that I could defend the Fed's actions was during COVID. That's when policymakers forced the entire country down. Look, I have a lot of issues of how they did it, but I kind of get that's what the Fed was there for. What I have an issue with is you kept rates at zero for 10 to 12 years. What the fuck do you think was going to happen? We don't have a demand problem. We have a supply problem right now. I mean, we're going to have a demand problem eventually. If they were to do something dovish, oil would be at 150. So that's where they're boxed in. The other issue that I have a big problem with, how the Fed thinks that this quantitative tightening is equal to a quarter point, half a point, that, to your point, Dan, you just made, hold on, that is their biggest miscalculation, and here's why. It's not mathematical. It's behavioral. Why do I say that? Mortgage-backed securities. Why have mortgages gone up so much relative to treasuries? Because people anticipated the Fed pulling liquidity from the mortgage market. They actually said two months ago, we're going to outright sell mortgage-backed securities. So it's the front-running, in a legal manner, I should say, from a behavioral perspective, of that. 
to think that that's a quarter or a half point is crazy. To know the Fed has your back is priceless. To know when they don't, you can't put a number on it. So there is no mathematical equation. And his Sally Field moment, that's what he had yesterday. He had, they like me. He wanted to be liked yesterday on that press conference. He tried to say things that whatever, and people saw right through it after, you know, 12 hours. No, you're spot on. So what forces them to pivot again? My opinion only. But if the credit markets start to seize up, they're going to be forced to pivot again. If they make that pivot, Vinny, I will tell you flat out, that's going to be the green light for commodities. Forget about crypto, but I also believe it's going to be the green light for crypto. But I'll tell you, and I think you agree with me, Danny Moses, that's when gold has its day. So Vinny, talk to me about that potential happening. Well, that's my big issue, which is, okay, let's fast forward a month or two, and the Fed does something that gets the second or third derivative thinkers to think that they pivoted. And if that's the case, I'm with you that you are now going to be in more of an accommodative, risk-on, liquidity-on environment. And as a result, eventually, yeah, first they'll take up the beaten down Kathy Woodstocks, but eventually the commodities are going to go up. So I think, and Porter can jump in here, I think what you really need is a complete regime shift. That's my opinion. I'll talk about it in a little bit. Yes, of course, if the Fed pivots, all these stocks are going to go up. And I think that's the opportunity to sell more because this is a cycle and earnings revisions are just getting started. And we're here at peak margins and margins are going nothing but down. Revenues are going down and you still have people buried alive in tech stocks and all this illiquid stuff. And honestly, no one knows what to do. And this is all just... the reverse of what Bernanke talked about. I go back to the original explanation of QE. He's trying to push people out on the risk curve. Now the people who were buying AAA at the end, there was not much to buy. Now the AAA buyer can buy real assets at real yields, and he doesn't need to mess around with all this junk. And when the rug gets pulled and all this junk, right, you've seen IG issuance go to nothing, it really affects the liquidity and the wheels of finance and all this stuff. And people don't have a clue because credit is such a weird thing. And it's the underlying growth of all this stuff. And the rug is being pulled. And so I think that it's going to be a slow motion train wreck in terms of earnings. The market kind of gets it, but the people on the ground can't see it yet. But come this fall, the economy is going to feel really bad. And I think that's the biggest issue. So, Guy, even before I knew you, I know you're a a pop culture guy. Porter just made a comment, buried alive. That comes from the wrath of Khan. Khan. (laughs) Ricardo Montalban, other than Fantasy Island, his greatest moment. How about the Chrysler Baron commercials? Or Jerry will tell you that wrath of Khan is the best picture. Jerry Khan. I mean, Jerry Khan. What? Wrath of Khan. No, you don't remember the episode, the Seinfeld episode? Yes, I do. But hang with me here. Buried alive. I know this is nuts. I started thinking of the Barney song. Vinny, what Barney song would I be singing with Baby Bop and Barney? Would it be Clean Up? This is Clean Up, Clean Up. Hold on. Every, this is the Clean Up. This is it. Bye-bye, Kathy Wood. Bye-bye, Ross Gerber. Bye-bye, Gary Black. Bye-bye, all these people that have been living in this world of pretend because we are in Barney world of pretend is what it has been. This is my rod, I guess. I'm going to move right into a Barney Danny, I, I'm more when the levee breaks right now. I mean, Big short theme song. We talked about this. No, but my point is that you want to know when I'll be bullish? This, I think it was a question I'll answer later that came from a listener or viewer on Twitter or whatever. When it's going to be bullish? When I see those things go by, when Kathy Wood files bankruptcy, when that arc shuts down, when I see people fleeing, 
I know we're getting closer. Yes, Vinny. I would just like to even see outflows from Mark. Right. She's a marketing genius. By the way, if I invent a product and I want to sell something, I'm hiring her. She'll be available to sell something. It's just unbelievable what he, she has pulled these people. Anyway, so you made a comment about we'll see those stocks, Kathy Wood stocks, go up. I mean, to me, those are orphan stocks. They're gone. And we're going to get into Tesla here in a second. But that's the stuff you need to see to know that you're near the bottom, the rational behavior. And I will say one other thing about this market, which has perplexed me for several years. To me, it's about behavioral finance, and everything has been the opposite. The most obvious things have worked. From a timing perspective, nothing has made sense. And I think I've said it from all along. The institutional community has underappreciated the power of the retail community and underappreciated, I always have, how much capital the Fed was providing into the markets. But I mentioned before, you can't quantify what quantitative tightening takes away because of the pile and the pyramid that comes on top of them knowing you have – it's not about $9 trillion. It's about the trillions that are after that that knowing that they feel secure. Now it's the opposite. So it's not about the Fed unwinding the balance sheet. It's about the confidence that they're there. So not only are they not there anymore, they're acting like morons. And so combine that, that's why we're dealing with a day we're down 4% today. And I got news for you. There's no October 19th, 1987, but it's been happening over a course of a week or two. We're down, what is it, near 10% probably in the last seven, eight trading sessions between, I think we had a two, a three, a two. Right. And the S&P is only down 23% from its all-time highs. And we go back to the time, this is trial by fire for Powell in 2018. And we talked about this a lot in Q4 when the S&P went down 20%. Given everything, the cross currents, the headwinds, everything, this can't be it. Listen, I got to give Guy a lot of credit. He never likes to toot his own horn a little bit. Nostradami? Nostradami. He's been saying, based on math, I want to put a 10-year average PE of the S&P about 17 on basically, I don't know, 3 4% EPS growth. Like We were all astounded that the 10-plus percent consensus estimate for S&P earnings has not budged. It's still about 10%. You know, it's a bit higher in, in some areas or whatever. So if you put, let's say, 5%, you get to your 3750. You've been calling the 3750 all year. Now you want to do 17, and then maybe that's even high. You guys would say on flat. That's high. Go ahead, Vinny. Lower. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. We're playing uh, car sharks. Car sharks. Car sharks. Lower, Lower, Bob. Lower, Bob. Right. So, so 17 times 200, that gets you to 3,400. That's your new Nostradami. That's your new target here, 3,400 on the downside. But if you hear Vinny talk and, you know, magic man, now you see me, now you don't. That's what's going to happen with earnings, by the way. Well, El Diablo, too. <laughs> You're going to talk about 200, maybe on a 15 number, and then you could start seeing how this thing can escalate to the downside, can continue to cascade to the downside. So, you know what's funny and curious as to what you guys, people say you're un-American, you're always negative. First of all, fuck you, and I'm saying that. If you want to edit it out, that's fine. I, really no, I think we're going to leave that, actually. But second of all, I think the most American thing you can do is to try to point out that just sort of the madness that's going on while people are sort of caught up in it. So anyway, that's my mini rot. Anyway, Porter, please. I'll use Danny's line. People are like, oh, you're, you're always bearish. I told my dad to sell stocks once ago. Dad, sell everything. He's like, Porter, you're, you're always negative. I'm like, no, no, I'm a realist. That's Danny's line. I have to say, like, from our perspective, Vinny and I, like, the first part of this has been, for us, very easy. Because you think about us, we've been through two crashes for the dot-com and the 08. We run bearish anyway. We go zero to bear faster than Tesla. <laughs> we only read bearish books. We only read bearish tweets. And we only have bearish friends. So, yes, the first part, if we had missed this tech crash, we would have really impaled ourselves. So... And then we luckily also had the inflation call on the long side. 
The only problem from here is, and I said it on another podcast, this is the part of the market that gets bloody, where you're waiting for earnings to go down, and some will, some won't, and people will be squeezed and all over the place. And I think this is going to be the hard part of the cycle. And there are stocks that we love and we were talking about, and today we're like, I love the stock. It's just not going to go up. It's frustrating, but- Let's address Tesla right now. I know every podcast we talk about it eight times, but- my boys are here with me, and there's been a lot of development. You're feeling good. You're feeling I'm, good. I'm, feeling, I'm, I'm in a comfort zone that I can talk about it. I will say this. Vinny and Porter remember this. There was a time period during the financial crisis. I actually said, I probably said it every day, so it went unanswered. But if you're long, New Century, credit home lenders, countrywide at the time, you don't deserve to be a part of any shareholder lawsuit that comes your way. You should be expelled from ever owning a stock again for idiocy. You shouldn't have to, because any moron could see what was on the wall. Anybody could tell you that the CEOs were lying to you. Anyone could tell you that it was there right in front of you. So you have no right to invest at all. I mean that. This should be relegated away from anyway. We are now at that point with Tesla. I'm sorry, but we are. Forget about valuation. It's not a valuation goal. This is the handwriting that's on the wall. It's not ghostwritten. It's actually coming out on the wall. Larry Ellison leaving last week on a Friday night dirty. Not being replaced either. The three-for-one stock split. I need Gary Black to tell me, no, that's a positive. I've done research on something, whatever. So Friday night dirties are Friday night dirties. That's why they come out on Friday nights. I'll get three days to go away. Okay. People resigning from places, whatever. Then Plainsight comes out with a report and the NHTSA comes out. I'm setting the table for you guys here. These are fundamental issues with the company, but they're also potentially criminal issues with the company. And the one thing, and I'll turn it over to you guys in a second, that stands out to me the most that's been found that people just want to willfully ignore because Elon Musk can cure anything is that the autopilot reaction that people only had a split second to put their hands back on the wheel so that Tesla could say the way their software is written, it wasn't on autopilot when it happened. There's a lot of things here I just loaded onto you were there. But again, fundamentally, I don't have to make an argument. It's a short. But these other things are happening. And so give me your guys' current opinion, where you are, what you think about Tesla here, because at this moment, I'm short the stock, everybody out there. So yes, I'm talking my book. I don't give a shit. Because this is the most short I have ever been in the name right now. And I said it to everyone. I said, it's a better short at 600 or 650 than it is at 900. And now we're seeing why. So to me, the one thing the bulls have on us is that we have yet to be able to prove that their TAM math is wrong. You're going fundamental on me. No, no. And so as a result, they've been able to cling on to this demand thing for that car, regardless of... He's a crook, regardless if he's a charlatan. What is he doing with Twitter, the Dogecoin, the FSD, everything? They said, well, guys, he sells cars and he lands rockets on moons. I actually think over the next six months, he's going to have a problem hitting his demand targets. He's definitely going to have a hard time. And they'll probably dismiss it in 2Q because of one-off issues. But I think once that happens, it's completely over. All right. So what did you guys make of the two weeks ago? He said he has a super bad feeling about the economy. Is that a soft guide speaking to this demand issue? We know that the China production is uh, – listen, China demand is not going to be a thing in my opinion. By the way, their market share in China is a disaster. Right. We used to say on names like Tesla is right now he's getting out his cauldron, boiling water. And he's about to create the greatest alchemy known to mankind to make the quarter. The guy's a master at bullshit gap and pro forma adjusted. So he's going to make the quarter. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to do it. The real question is, does he pivot on demand a little bit? And if it does, I mean, there's 300 to 400 bucks down just there. And to me, that's kind of what I play for. 
And on the bull case, knock on wood, but I don't really see what people are seeing anymore because the probability of that TAM demand in 2030X just seems far-fetched. That's all you got? I mean, I need more than that, boys. I mean, <laughs> he might be cooking books. We know that the, he's counting used car sales as new sales, whatever. Vinny, the metrics you're talking about where he makes quarters may not be real. But even if it is real, I think your point is that it's expensive on, on any metric. But the whole thing is about him and his brand, and he is the brand. So things that happen to him and the walls are caving. He switched political parties. He'll do that. Larry Ellison leaving is a big deal. So, Porter, we have this other podcast called OK Computer, and we have a lot of tech folks. Every single podcast, I'll ask a VC, an operator, a founder, I really want to get them on the record for why they think he's such a special entrepreneur. And I think it's really interesting. People are scared to death in the tech universe to say anything negative about him. And so my take here is this. In the 25 years I've been in the business, and we've all been in the business that same amount of time, guy another 25 years. So, But I've never seen a mania. I've never seen a meme stock. I've never seen a cult leader as it relates. I've never seen it go the opposite way and not overcorrect. It just never happened. So this has to happen unless it's just so strange. And also when you think about Guy, you were calling that quarter, that Q1 print, the immaculate quarter or something like that. I called it the immaculate quarter. Sorry. That's okay. You did. And on the show Fast Money that evening, you quoted it. what I said was, this is the quarter that they just reported, they being Tesla, that if you've been bullish in Tesla for the last three years, you have absolutely been waiting for it. The stock closed that day, I think, a little north of $1,000. In the after hours, it traded up to 1080 And we said, folks, just putting it out there, this is probably as good as it gets. And you probably only have downside from here. I will tell you, not that I particularly care, but I got eviscerated on Twitter for saying that. And now, $400 later, here we are. Yeah. You know what they should do? The only way that stock's getting to 1000 is a one-for-two stock split, not a three-for-one stock split, whatever they announce. All right. Let's move on what Elon Musk was supposed to solve, which is the climate crisis, of which he's now supporting people that are anti, you know. Who don't buy electric. Exactly. So, But that's fine. So let's talk about energy. Because I have issues with people being morons. People now coming after the energy sector, claiming, oh, we should tax your gains, whatever. You know what? Let me just say, I know guys going to agree on me. Go after the airlines first. Those ones get bailed out every time something shitty happens. Then they gouge the consumer. Go after the airlines first. Let's just go with energy stocks here. Because one of the questions that we're going to front run now that we're going to get in part two, we're going to answer it now, was about what do you think of energy here? And on a relative basis, let me just set the table. Energy is certainly the most attractive from a fundamental basis. What can you own in this market? Well, if you told me where oil was going to be, I could tell you how much energy you would want to own. What are the best balance sheets out there right now? Probably energy on the cash flows that they're producing relative. So you guys have been on this trade for well over a year, probably two years at this point on energy, and had nothing to do with before Ukraine. This was way before the supply. So give us an update on where you guys think about energy right now. And all this political rhetoric which is now coming at them, which I think will go by the wayside, give us your updated thoughts on that. So go back to how we got in the trade. I mean, first of all, we looked at capital availability, back to where the banks were lending, where they are not. And so an oil company could not get a loan anywhere. The capital markets are shut out. And so we got into it that way. And then oil started going up, cash flows were there. And then, yes, did we get lucky with Ukraine? Absolutely. But here we are now. And my fear in the short term is that it got some hot money as it was the only thing working. Do I worry about the stocks? long-term? Not really. On the margin, have we been trimming some? Yes. Our new 
favorite energy trade. We've been there for a long time. This is not a recommendation to buy the stock. In fact, I don't want you to buy the stocks, but coal stocks. Peabody? Yeah, I love Peabody. Is that symbol BTU? Yeah, it is. Okay. But I, and I honestly don't want anyone to buy it. But they're going to return their market cap in a year. I don't care if energy goes up or down a little bit. They were completely shut out of the capital markets for a long time. They want to put these companies out of business, whereas everyone else's cost of capital is going up. BTU is becoming debt-free, net cash positive this quarter. I mean, that's a big sea change, and that's fundamental stuff that we like. One of the questions we always like to ask ourselves at Seawolf and now, what is the next 10, 20% in the stock? Gun to head, do you think the next 20% is up or down? And for the first time in a while, with regards to energy stocks, the answer is about 50-50. And if you put a real gun to my head, I said, given what the Fed is doing, and they're just trying to destroy demand, chances are energy stocks are going to be down 20%. And they've already corrected a reasonable amount. But I still think they might have more to go. But on the long-term basis, again, this comes back to my issue of structural. We need more energy, period. We need to spend massive amounts of CapEx on energy. And what bothers me, Guy, you get me going right now with the Fed. One of the biggest issues associated with what the Fed has done over the last 14 years is the massive malinvestment that we have had in the world. Do we need another data dog? Do we need anything associated with Web 3.0? Do we need anything associated with crypto? The amount of money that has been spent and invested in VC, 30, 40, 50 billion, it's all gone. Dust. It's gone. VC was almost a trillion dollars last year. It's gone. The odd thing is what I'm potentially maybe bullish on six months from now is a complete regime shift where we shift from capital adversely invested in all this stupid crap that they're going to have to write down and put it into things that we actually need to get true inflation expectations down. Now you're getting me wound up because I've said this now for years amongst the many unintended or maybe intended consequences of the Fed's largesse is it made people lazy. Whether they thought that was going to happen or not, that's what happened. And the things that people should have been investing in, they stopped. And it's just makes me crazy the level of complacency out there and the level of laziness, it made corporate America lazy. Why? Because you know what? We don't have to focus on our business. Why? Because we can borrow money cheap. We can buy back our stock. Our stocks go up every day because stocks go up every day. And now we're seeing the other side of that. Now we're starting to learn that maybe these geniuses weren't, in fact, geniuses. And the level of bad investment, malinvestment, whatever yeah. word you want to use, is out there. Benny and I may be bears. We're patriots. We love America. And we want... Intel investing all this capital to build fabs back in the U.S. is a big deal. The global supply chain issues aren't going away. And the fact that if we want to have a secure supply chain, more stuff is going to have to be invested in America. Is that inflationary? Yes, it is. But in terms of having real jobs, having the middle class, having a real good paying jobs, that's the stuff that needs to come back. And that's the stuff that needs to be invested in. And we've for somehow gotten away from all this stuff. And so 
that's the stuff that would make me bullish. And I've been saying this for years, but no one cares. Yeah, so the only point I was going to make, and I know, Guy, that you do not solely place this on the hands or the shoulders of the Fed. I'm reading a friend of mine's book, David Gellis, New York Times journalist. It's an awesome book. It's called The Man Who Broke Capitalism, How Jack Wells Gutted the Heartland and Crushed the Soul of Corporate America. This happened well before QE. So malinvestment, corporate bullshit. This is well before quantitative easing. You're actually getting a little bit into the semi-annual review we're writing right now, right? Which is, this is a 40-year phase. And I think the end of a 40-year cycle. So this has been going on for a long time. The U.S. hegemonic, unipolar, tax favorable to capital, all that stuff. I think there's a chance that all of it is about to come to an end or the probability of a slight change and pivot to something different than that is highly probable. And that's what we're interested in. And that's what I'm getting more bullish on. Not now, six months from now. That's some wage inflation there, Vinny. This next 30 seconds is brought to you by Tequila Comos and Yeho Cristalino, because I've had about two of them since I've been standing here. But I want to get your thoughts, Vinny. And I would say two years ago, you called crypto a Ponzi scheme. Wait, on this podcast, he called it the perfect Ponzi. He called it the perfect. Actually, he did call it the perfect. And so congrats on that call. But I've looked at these tokens. What are they called? Protocols. Protocol. As a company. So when I look at Ethereum, I say, oh, it was 500 billion market cap. Well, that makes sense in this idiocy that exists in the NASDAQ stocks. Oh, Bitcoin was a $1.2 trillion, whatever. Now they're obviously down a lot. So I look at them like that because the only way that I can remain sane about it, I need your guys. A lot of energy demand has gone into mining. Too much. I know people will say, oh, it's saving the world. Whatever. I need your guys' updated thoughts on crypto here. Malinvestment, too much energy. We heard someone speak who's built this huge, he's like the fourth or fifth largest data cloud provider who used to be a miner of crypto. Porter's home state, Texas, approximately 8 to 10% of their energy goes to mining crypto. That's bullshit. What are we doing? The stuff that I got into, Danny, and I didn't do as much work as we did way back during CDOs and the house. How to short prices. these things. Right. I wish I did. but Still can Oh, we've been short of them. Yeah. Yes. But the publicly traded, there was more to do other yeah. than this, right? Is this whole concept of DeFi. And DeFi is specialty finance. It's wholesale funded finance, our wheelhouse. As we went down that rabbit hole, you started to realize the entire thing was complete other bullshit. All of it. There was no use case. And even when I was thinking about Ethereum as a potential replacement to Visa and MasterCard. So let me get this straight. You have a new payments vehicle that costs more than Visa, charges more than Visa. Unregulated. Right, unregulated, and is not as fast as Visa and MasterCard. So how in the world are you going to replace something that is regulated with something that's unregulated, that's slower and more expensive? What are we doing? Why are we wasting this money? Well, it goes back to the Winklevice. Don't stop believing. I just saw their concert online. It was marvelous. Uh, Porter, give me a, come on. Was Bitcoin an elegant thought process? Yes. We came up with 10 thousand coins. It turned into probably what will be one of the greatest bubbles this world has ever seen. I'll give the SEC credit for something. To not approve these lenders, to not approve Gemini. They did. They said, F this. This is a security. You're not doing this. They let them be on the wayside. And the irony is that everyone in crypto, and just for everyone listening out here, I'll say this, Benny Porter, I hated Bitcoin at a thousand. So I'm the wrong guy. But I knew structurally this sector was going to suck people in and there would be bad actors that have existed. And it will remain. Crypto is here to stay in some form. Blockchain, it's here. 
Well, I'm not, and I'm not going to defend it, but we could have been having this conversation in 2001 about internet over the last four or five or six years and the malinvestment and the schemes and the scammers and the this and whatever. And I think it's important to have that sort of context in a way because we have no idea it did turn into a two and a half trillion dollar thing. And to your guys' point about VC, there were some of the largest VC Web3 crypto focused things. Andreessen did a four and a half billion dollar fund. Katie Hahn, ex-Andreessen, did a one and a half. These are all in the last few months. So actually, that's the most bullish thing for crypto is that those funds have been raised. They're going to be deployed and they're probably going to find some reasonable homes that come up with the next, I don't know, trillion dollar protocol or company or something like that. Because Guys, 20 years ago, nobody in their wildest dreams could have imagined that Amazon that lost 90% of its equity value from its highs in 2000 to its lows in 02 at some point was going to be nearly a $2 trillion company with a half a trillion dollars in sales. Is that fair? We could all dream that dream 20 years out or no? This is not 3D printing from seven years ago. To be fair, it's not our skill set to be a visionary like that, to see the opportunity. Not, not mine either. But I will say to date... Everything I've heard, what they're doing, none of it goes through. I haven't heard a but, use but case. Vinny, what if I push back and say that there's probably some of the most genius things that might be able to fix traditional finance in the wreckage of DeFi of 2022? Hold on, Dan. Let me just say, some of the smartest people I have ever met in my life are deep in the crypto weeds. Correct. So I know something's coming out of it. I know that there will be applications. Dan, I have no question. How to value them, I have no idea. If you want to equate it to the dot-com crisis when you had trillions disappear, a guy's going, here we no, go. No, 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 no. I, I, I didn't mean to do that, but I'll say this. Listen, you guys have collectively forgotten more about Bitcoin crypto than I'll ever know, number one. But what I have been pretty consistent about is I believe – Bitcoin was born out of this fear that central banks globally were running amok, fear fiat currencies blowing up. And the Bitcoin ballers out there, they never saw a responsible central bank in their lives. And it worked. But it's no coincidence that Bitcoin specifically topped out within a week or so of our Federal Reserve pivoting in November of last year. And the more hawkish this Fed has become, the lower Bitcoin has gone. So in my world, this Fed will pivot again at some point because that's what they do. To me, and maybe I'm crazy, but that will be the green light, not only for gold, which we talked about, but for Bitcoin. Am I off my rocker, Vinny? No. And I actually, I pivot a lot on my thinking on this one, but I actually think of the crypto community, and I'm including Bitcoin and the other part of the crypto community, which a lot... I actually think Bitcoin is the thing that I probably believe in the most. The guts and the academic perspective of Bitcoin. What I'm having struggling with is the other part of it because I don't necessarily know why tokens and coins and you know, which are really equity at the end of the day is needed to create the technology that we're talking about. Like you don't need that. To well, it's, it's a distributed it. technology. Like the last 25 years of technology or, or more has just been very centralized. Web three seems like it's a meme right now, but there will be a web three. Dan, in our world, and again, we cover financials. I know there's a dream to make financials unregulated and decentralized. Keep dreaming. Yeah. It's not but Vinny, going to happen. What if State Street and Bank of New York are so scared at T plus three going to T plus zero? We all know. And when you close on a mortgage and you buy a home and whatever. Hold on. I'm playing devil's advocate here on the blockchain. 
so my point to Dan's point to marry what I'm saying is there are technology applications that will come out of this that will be very efficient and very good. Listen, there's a reason that every Fortune 500 company said starting in, I would say, fourth quarter 2020, say something that we're in crypto. Okay, I get it. Jamie Dimon was the most reluctant, and then he dope. He must be killing himself now about the whole thing. Like, I can't believe I actually gave in to this thing. But they have to say, we're exploring for the shareholder. Like, they're saying the right things. Porter. I mean, for the record, we liked Bitcoin as a concept. Then I think when Dogecoin happened, my eyes glazed over, right? In terms of this was so clear, it was a pump and dump scheme by Elon. And that's when we were like, okay, the alarm bells are off and we got to do something here. So, yeah. All right, so we've heard a lot of stuff. And before we go into our next segment, which will be taking questions from Twitter universe, Vinny, I know you care. And that's the one thing that you, Porter, myself all share. We want to help people. It's not just about, quote, talking our book. We're passionate about this stuff in the market. So, Vinny, speak now and tell me what's on your mind. So we get a lot on Twitter, like you said, is what should we do? And I know Guy likes to set up a lot of pop culture analogies. And we're going to try to channel my inner Guy. Please. And tell me what's do all these things, these scenes in movies have in common? Balboa in three mm-hmm. in LA. <laughs> Clubber I'm- Lang in three in downtown South Chicago. I'm not done yet. Demi Moore's one-armed push-ups in G.I. Jane. Daniel Sun in Miyagi's oh. Backyard in Karate Kid Part One. Luke Skywalker, sorry, Porter, in the Dagobah system during The Empire Strikes Back. Christian Bale, somewhere in the Himalayas or wherever he was in Batman Begins, in one of my favorite movies, Christian Bale in his house somewhere in American Psycho. What do all those things have in common? Wow. I mean, I, you, that's such a pastiche you just gave me. You, help me out. Help me out. They're here. all training sessions. Yes. It was the simplicity of just the tra- I thought there was something like meta going no, on here. They're all training sessions. And generally speaking, all these training sessions happen without anyone seeing other than the audience, a way to get ready to fight a protagonist. What I think every investor should be doing right now is training, because I think the next three, four months are going to be a crap show. And volatility up, down, I'm not even saying super bearish, although I think the market's going down, but you're going to have bear market rallies. It's going to be vicious. And so what I would want to do right now is train and study names and things you want to do six months from now, I think we might have the potential to have enormous opportunities once this thing is over. But you can't deploy it now. And I can't even tell you exactly where to look because I'm in training mode myself. But to me, that's what you should be doing. Take your finger off the buy or sell button and put your finger more on thematically, where should I be looking at after this thing is done? So then I can make really outsized returns on a thematic. All right. So here's one. We all did a Twitter spaces last week. It was a Friday afternoon. Market was melting down and it melted down into Monday. So we had that follow through. We had a little bit of a bounce. And now obviously today, Thursday into the close, we have this kind of horrid day in the S&P down 3%, 4% in the NASDAQ. And Danny, you had kind of suggested that next week could be really nasty. So my question to you, Porter. The bounces are getting more feeble and more feeble. Vinny, you just mentioned bear market rallies. They're going to be vicious. Into that March Fed meeting, which was the first 
rate increase since 2018. We bottomed the day before. We ripped out of it 12, 13% or something like that. And since then, that drawdown from those highs in late March to those May lows that we just made, that was nasty. That felt really bad. And this bounce was really bad. So how do we get to that training point? Because to me, the lessons of the bear markets from the financial crisis and the dot-com was protracted. That was the point. It was going to wear you out. And so I'm just curious what you're thinking of because you want to keep selling rallies and it's really hard to kind of think about what your time horizon is in the equity markets, but you got to kind of start nibbling in. I bought a bunch of stocks in May in tech. I bought some ETH last week. I bought some more this week. I was making money. Now I'm losing money, but you got to kind of have a time horizon too, right? Because you're never going to nail the bottom. Vinny and I are getting more scared by the day. And we're scared because we've invested within this framework that the biggest bubble out there is the sovereign debt bubble. And you got to put it away at sometimes, you got to bring it back other times. We're bringing it back now. And that's the part that scares me the most. And for us to really get bullish, I have to check off a box saying, like, we're not going to crash badly in terms of 10 year treasury is not going to settle in at four and a half, five percent. If the 10-year does settle in at 45 to 5%, that's a very different regime than we're in right now. We have this little inflation burst now, but I think if you do demand destruction and you have these awful demographics in, in China and Russia and Japan and all over the place, and then you have the debt deflation, maybe we're in a different regime in a year or so. And so I think we have all these little ideas in our head of which way it could go. And honestly, we don't know which way it's going to go. We're doing our best and we have probabilities and stuff like that. So we're not taking a lot of big swings on the long side for now, except for gold. But we still have our shorts on. We're not taking our shorts off. and I haven't taken my shorts off. The training mode that we're talking about, the upstarts, the affirms, this credit stuff that people thought was something different, a new regime. We had seen this before. We had seen the movie. We knew it was going to happen. And it came. And we just had conviction that it was going to come. And if you have conviction, you stay in your names if you're able to. So, Well, before we go to Q&A, which is really important, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'll say this. When I hear Porter, you, Vinny, talk about now being scared, I hearken back to Danny Moses, who was as bearish as he's been. And then a few months ago, you said something that resonated with me then, and it absolutely stays with me now. And hopefully, folks, you heard it as well. Danny said, I've gone now from being bearish to being scared. And that haunted me then. And now hearing you guys reinforce the same things you were probably thinking at the time just makes me exactly that, Danny. The Fed's going to cut rates in 2022. No, people, that's not bullish at all. It'll be bearish. They'll rally them first, but... Yes, they'll rally them first, but why would they be cutting rates, everybody? Why would they be cutting rates? Because we're about to enter a very slow period for the economy. So I want to wrap it up with that before we go to Q&A, in case Dan plants one of these questions on me. I want to be really clear. It would have to be an absolute economic calamity for the Fed to be as aggressive as they have been to cut rates this year. I'm just saying to cut rates this year. Hold on, Dan. I got it. So our football bets are going to begin soon. (laughs) <laughs> whoa, whoa, this is so good. Oh, We're going to make a bet now. Right now. Because it, it's going to be- or nothing on what? It's a six-month bet because we're in June. I'm saying the Fed will cut rates in 2022. You think I'm, I'm I know you think I'm nuts. You want to take it? Even money. Yeah. Okay. They're not cutting rates. How much? You name it. Five grand. Five grand. Done. 
This will be the one. That's I mean, a great one. By the way, the odds you can get that in the market I know, are, are unbelievable. I know. 80 to 1. I know I can get them. And I will. When I set up my CME account, sponsored by CME. All right. When we come back, we're going to take Q&A from the Twitter world, all right? With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. And we are back with my former partners, Vincent Daniel and Porter Collins. It feels like a real Seawolf day. Yeah. But anyway, we have some questions that Porter had sent out to tweet this morning that he was going to be on here. And so we're going to go through some questions. Dan's going to read them. Yeah. And we'll all get the opportunity to answer. But I think these are more directed to you. So, Dan, fire away. Yeah, there was a lot of great questions. Let's look at this one from Twitter user at S-P-A-V-R-I asks, and I'm going to hit you, Porter, right out of the gate here. Current conditions are most similar to 1929, 1972, 2000, or some other time? Well, since I wasn't born in 29 or 72, I'm going to go with 2000. But the problem is is that valuations this time were more expensive than they were during the 2000 bubble. And if you think about the 2000 bubble, interest rates were 6.5%. They cut rates to 1%. And it took two years for tech stocks to bottom. This time, we're raising rates Stocks were more expensive, and there's nothing to come bail us out, right? There's no housing market to come bail us out. The Fed certainly ain't bailing us out. And so I actually think this time it's much more dangerous than it was in 2000. Here's one for you, Vinny. Actually, the Fed raised in May of 2000. And so think about this and putting this in some context in a way is that when they were raising, they kind of knew there was a little bit of an asset bubble, whether we think it was more expensive or less expensive than now, but they quickly pivoted. And so from a Fed funds that was above 6% that went down to one, you know, it took as Porter just said, years for that thing to shake out. So is there a hint of 2007, 8, 9 wrapped into that answer also? I don't see 2007, 8, and 9, at least for me. And I'm probably biased just simply because we've covered financials and that's our specialty. And so the regulated financials, which I'm not saying I like, they're not necessarily in any trouble. Quite frankly, their capital's fine or, or reasonably fine. It feels more like a 2000 moment, but let's rewind the clock to 2000 as well. 
they had their own stim moment, not as big as the one we had in COVID, but it was, if you remember Y2K, and they flooded the system with liquidity. So they, at that point in time, they were dealing with the tech bubble and they were dealing with a one-time stim. So it is very similar to what we see in 2000, in my opinion. I want to add one thing to that, to Porter's comment on most similar to tech bubble of 2000. If we remember... We all do. On Just so you know, this is not NPR. You could turn up the, the heat here a little bit. But. All right. Well, I agree. But one thing happened that we forgot about. Never, No one ever forgets about it. But 9-11 occurred. If we remember, the economy was already suffering. You know, things were bad. The Fed came in because of 9-11 and cut 50 basis points six days later, right? Because obviously, and the, like we always do in this country, we rebound quickly and everybody kind of comes back and prospers. It added a lot more fuel. It actually is what led, one of the things that actually led to the financial crisis, to this mortgage market happening. It actually was, you know, they printed money, well, printed money, they eased monetary policy, and it actually led into this next round, which was 2004, 2005, 2006. And people always ask, is it similar to 2008? I always think back, we were looking in five and six, the stuff was already happening. But one of the things that happened was mortgages were prepaying, financial product ingenuity was occurring, right? And so credit looked better than it really was, and that is what's similar to what's now because the Fed was buying high-yield paper. All right. So, and, and you guys have been on the pod a bunch over the last year, and, and you have always made that distinction about 2007, seven, eight, and, and really how different the situation is as, as it relates to banks. Why is it, though, that J.P. Morgan topped out in late October of 2021? It's down 35% making new 52-week lows today as we're speaking versus an S&P that's down 23%. And here's a headline, okay? And Guy's been flagging this. Danny's been flagging this on the pod. Here's a headline that just hits Bloomberg. U.S. high-grade outflows reached 12 weeks, longest streak on record. If you think about J.P. Morgan, they're the biggest capital markets provider. And investment grade, which is still having an okay year, but it goes back to 2012 levels. High yield, we're looking at 2008 levels of issuance. And in terms of IPOs, there's not going to be another one for five years at this point, right? They got all the crap out. So just the liquidity drain is, is done. There's no more liquidity coming to the market. Even the Fed's pulling QT. So this is why I'm, I went from bearish to, to, uh, to scare. You can say it. Yeah, I, can I, say it. I went to bearish. You can say Fonzie. To yes. scare. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm, I'm depressed because we're looking into to like years Hold on a second. Of, Before of Vinny stuff. answers the question. Okay. So the scene in the big short, we, we literally went to the steps of St. Patrick's Cathedral. The world was ending. We were watching it. doesn't feel that bad. No. But it's starting to feel, as you said, I said to Porter and Renee, where are you? They're like, uh, we're in Bryant Park waiting for you today. I'm like, where? He goes, what are you looking at? He goes, I'm looking at ghosts. Yeah. Or what you said, because it feels like, Vinny, go ahead. But So I'll get to that in a second, staring at ghosts. But that gets back to the point. Back in 08 and 09. Sam Darnold staring at ghosts? That we're talking about? Not. Yes. Similar. But- you go back to 08 and 09, we felt at the time, and we actually were going to be proven right, that the banks were about five, six days away from filing bankruptcy, right? Like the Morgan well, Stanley and Goldman did, Sachs, they were really close to filing BK and restructuring. I don't feel that right now. So that's why I don't feel like ATMs are not going to open up on Monday. No, there's no systemic risk to the banking and that, system. So, so I, I separate- the-, the Bitcoin ATMs. That's different. Oh, okay. So, that, so we'll get to that. Right, but but <laughs> the difference is, is that I separate what JP Morgan stock did or has done right now versus before versus the s- systemic feelings that I feel. Okay. But what about what Jamie Dimon was on their 
Q1 conference call in mid-April, and he said a whole bunch of things, and the stock rallied 10 15%. And then by May, they had an analyst meeting. He kind of tempered some of that enthusiasm a little bit. And then we got hit, right, with that kind of economic hurricane coming. So, like, are, are we listening to what he says when he's cautious? And, and you know, you know, I'll let I'm Porter saying, answer this, but I want to say, think yeah. about this. Walmart was caught off guard. Target was caught off guard. These companies have analysts internal that supposed to be able to predict all these things and didn't. So Jamie Dimon, literally, the markets were closing in real time, which is I know we, we already. Oh, well, first of all, they knew the capital market stuff was toast. They knew that capital. Like, I'm, I'm talking that. about. I'm talking about just in general. I'm talking the, the about consumer. Lending. I'm talking I get about it. defaults. What I'm did Jamie Dimon like say two weeks ago on the follow up to your to your point about what he made when a hurricane was coming? He said, "Hey, FYI, we're we're raining back lending." He said it. We talked yeah. about this last week on the pod. Yeah, Porter, yeah. go ahead. One of the pro- problems now. And the way I think about it is just so early. And in 2008 was two years in the making. We were shorting subprime in the summer of 2006. So it was a long process to get to 2008 and then to bottom in 2009. Just like how long that process is. The banks topped out in the summer of 2008. And I think now we're just very early in the sign. I mean, the earnings estimates haven't even been coming down yet. And so... I think we're a long way from bottoming, in terms, at least in terms of time frame. And earnings are going down. Right? S&P earnings are going down and all over the place. And we're just so early in that process. Just, you know, the, the stock market sniffs it out. And it's sniffing it out currently. And that's what we're seeing. And just I think- to be clear, you said the banks topped out in summer eight, summer seven. I know you know that. I'm just saying, yes, I, I, and I'm looking at it right here. So the, the Sorry, point- Sorry, that was, I felt Wells Fargo squeezing me in yeah. 2008. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but, but, but that actually helps make your point even better that they topped out in 07. I mean, there were, there were plenty of people who saw the cycle sort of ending. I would say understanding the banks, whether you trade them or not, whether that's your you know, main sector is crucial to understanding. And why that is, is because banks are a natural fit into fixed income, which is entire- thing has been led by. The ease of credit, the ability, the leverage, everything's, everything looks great when you don't have to really underwrite anything. And that's really what this is, Vinny. So uh, we talk about it all the time, not that we do things other than financials. The way we use financials is who are they or who are they not providing liquidity to or for? So you could easily just speak to the management teams and saying, where, you know, where, where are you putting capital to work? Where are you putting capital to work? And, and it generally, it's been in two or three places. But when you see what we've seen, which is probably one of the the most rapid, at least percentage rises in risk-free rates that we've seen in ages, it's natural that you're going to see liquidity dry up. And I guess Jamie Dimon was a bit more rose-colored glasses in 1Q, hoping that it won't be as bad as what he thought he was seeing. I mean, he's he's definitely the smartest CEO in Bankland, but you know, sometimes you have to have a really cynical view of the world like the Seawolf guys and we have to actually say what he should be saying, it's going to be a crap show in a quarter, but no CEO can get on stage and tell the entire world, particularly someone as important as Jamie Dimon, who says, oh, no, 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 guys, what you're seeing now is bullshit. This is going to be a crap show in a quarter or two, batting the hatches. So can't say it. The question for these guys is, where does JP Morgan go? Okay, we've seen cycles. I agree. It's, we've talked about this on the show. It's not as bad as 2008. The, the banks are very well capitalized. As a matter of fact, probably to a fault where they'll retrench sooner than they would have knowing that the world's going to be watching them. So these things can trade towards book value. There's a big difference in tangible book value and overall book value. So give us your opinion. When you look at the ROE, they've been over-earning, right, for a period of time. 
what it looks like in a normalized environment and where can people start to look at something like J.P. Morgan. And I'm putting you on the spot. I don't even know if you know the tangible book value off the top of your head of J.P. Morgan or not. We can look it up here real quick. But to me, it's something it's something slightly over tangible book value and assuming X amount of losses. But anyway, give us, give us a guide. I just think you got to see credit losses first. You got to experience the credit losses and, and kind of go through some of that and go through some of the pain before you can say, oh, all, all the, the, the decks are clear. We're not even anywhere close to this stuff. And 99% of people in the market have never seen a normal credit cycle. You know, we saw 2008, which is a mess, but like it's just a normal old-fashioned credit cycle. And we're so far away from getting through that and to where it's all flushed out. And when you flushed out, then you buy them. That, that, that's how I think about it. Well, in a normal credit cycle. So I actually saw this coming in today. But just so you know, the best performing asset class in the global markets right now is China property stocks. Why? They haven't traded since March 30th. They're there performing is. great. There anyway, it is. You but, guys, yeah. you know and love that. Any thoughts on that? Because it is credit. And I said, hold on. We talked about this on this podcast for the last several months. Watch the banks that aren't reserving and watch the banks that are. JP Morgan is reserving. But to your point, it's no longer a tailwind. There's no releases coming. But Vinny, they, go they ahead. did change the accounting, which is going to make. Yeah, it I simple. was just yeah. about to get into that. So, so there what was a ch- there was a change in the accounting, which makes the earning stream significantly more cyclical. So, in times when boom times, J.P. Morgan's going to look cheap just because they're they're over earning because they're releasing reserves. So we now look closer to tangible book as as a backstop. As they, when do you go long them? When do you go short them? And just look back in history. So my suggestion is when we would want to buy JP Morgan, and again, taking into account, you want to see the whites of the eyes of credit first. But if it goes to a discount to tangible book, say 85% of tangible book, 80%, 90% of tangible book, that's when you could start looking at these things. All right. Here's one from Nick. It's at N underscore Lowry. What are some of the sectors that do well during a recession? It's a great question because I'm going to turn it around in a little bit. What have you been adding to your longs? Which is probably the best question. We do think that we're going to go through a recession. And the only thing that we've been adding is gold. Because eventually, to us, gold is the report card on central banks. And F. And we always believe that central banks are going to eventually get an F. Blutarski. So at some point, and I don't know when, but at some point, the Fed is going to have to shift to a more accommodative stance. And I think that's the time when gold should shine. So we've been accumulating a gold position even bigger than what we had, because we think that that it's really going to outperform and actually maybe absolutely perform over the next six to nine months. And I I would say that our spidey sense is that no one's involved. The crypto stole its thunder and it didn't do anything and people didn't jump back in. And now people are once again you know, the, the responses to, to the gold question were like, oh, no, gold's going to have a liquidity angle to it when everything goes down. Then you can buy gold. Maybe. I don't know. That, that's the thing is, is, you know, we've been accumulating physical gold, some miners, our gold broker, a little gold broker that we love. But I, I just think that the optionality is very good, right? If you could say 10% up, 10% down, I, I think it's 10% up in gold prices. Here's interesting. So we're, we're probably in a recession. But I don't care what the definition of two negative GDP, whatever, it gives a shit. So normally in a recession, you maybe have starting at a place with higher rates were, right? So the point Porter made a few minutes ago, we're raising rates into recession. That's stagflation, but that's a whole other story. So normally the stuff that you would own the playbook, there is no playbook for this cycle. There's nothing we've ever seen anything that looks like this. It's not catastrophic, but there is no set playbook. I think you want to own 
healthcare companies, right, that pay dividends, right? You can own drug companies, whether you like them or not, that pay dividends. Things that consumer staples, a story. Look at the way Walmart's acting today. I think Walmart's up on the day. I think it's still green today. Like names like that that traded. Yeah, it's 15, also down 30%. I, I get it. Three weeks. It already, because it already built, it's Good telling you what's. All right. That's that's nice, Dan. Good anyway, that. 52 yeah. week highs to 52 week, week lows in a, in a range of 30%. I'm, I bring it up because obviously, whatever, Dan. You know what? I, I wish. I, next honestly, question. You know what? Dan? I would have paid next, to be on the You would have lost the bet. Okay. We, we literally would have gone to. You remember the bet we had on Walmart? Uh, I lost lots of bets. Okay. All right. Anyway, here, here's, one, here's one from Andrew Wheeler at Boston Andrew. Good handle there, Boston Andrew. This one's kind of. He, he's basically saying, you guys have been in bear mode. Me too. But being constructive, what could possibly avoid the seemingly inevitable collapse? What's out there, guys? Is there like a kind of cocktail out there that could kind of turn the economic tide that could kind of make, you know, kind of, I don't know, risk assets kind of look attractive. We just had this conversation with our, our friend, Stephen, we had lunch with, and uh, we were talking about what could possibly go right and and really muck the markets up. And that's somehow Ukraine and Russia come into a ceasefire. Because I think Danny's shaking his head, it's not going to happen. I said, what could go right? But I think that it would do a two to three week algo, really rip everything around. And I think that's going to, that would be painful for a lot of people. So that's a possibility. But the other thing is that what I think bulls should be looking forward to is some sort of big calamity, right? That makes the Fed go, uh-oh, I need to stop hiking, right? That repo blowout crisis. And I think that's coming, right? There's something- Most definitely. So, something big is going to break <laughs> and it's going to break hard here. And it, you just can't have this kind of, of calamity happen. At least that, that's been our experience. Oh, yeah. Vinny, give me your thoughts here before I- Before you yell at me after I try to be- No, I listen. I, remotely I look for reasons to be bullish every day. Sure you do. I do. And then I wake up. The Look, the only thing I could- There's short-term bullish- long-term bullish. Start with the short-term bullish. Some form of Fed accommodation is like, as I said before, I don't think that's a panacea. The second thing, which is the bigger issue, is a major, major change in government policy. Major. And again, that's remote. At least it's remote now. But things that could actually be constructive that can alter inflation expectations would be a major bullish point. And right now, to date, don't yell at me, Danny, we haven't seen anything. No, what do you, what, like what? Anything. Like what? What would you do if you Change were? of immigration policy. Okay. Right? Yeah. Uh, that would take, I mean, rep- yes. Repeal so the, open the Southern Repeal borders. the Jones Act. Open up 10, say, constructing 10 to 15 uranium refineries and uranium utility plants. I, I feel like we're playing that pyramid game where we're in the circle and all nothing's turned around on the Correct. Time you asked us Correct. to get bullish. You no, like, I know. <laughs> you're saying thing, things that make you bullish, go. Go. Okay. And, and I'm doing all them. Okay. Ding, ding. Yeah, I, no. They're not going to happen, but you're asking me why, what would get me bullish? That's what would get me bullish. All right. So, Vinny, we're not going to answer anymore about what could go right. Although, I, I, Danny, we didn't want to put you up to say what could go right. right. It might be tough for you. But one of our other co-hosts, Ned Michaels, who hosts Breaking Even, who's currently at the U.S. Open right now, who's literally the Jim Nance to the rest of the world other than everyone in the United States. So that's what he's doing, who I will be with on Saturday when I go in, into the into the open. And by the way, I got there through a John Daly charity event several months ago. So I'm thrilled to be there. It's going to be a great weekend. He wanted to ask some questions about things. Okay. So one of the questions he asked was, we already did this. Energy, we, we addressed it. Gold, yes, we believe in it. Tesla short timeline, always. I'll answer that. Where does the S&P go? 
So I know Guy had a theory, and we talked about it earlier, about you know, 17 times 200, 3,400. But what do you guys think? Because I'll have my opinion in a second. You know, I'll talk about in terms of where the multiple is on earnings. But the problem I have is that, and listen, this, we've been talking about this for over 10 years, is the use of adjusted earnings. What, what is earnings? And I, and I think that through this downdraft in tech, they're going to once again say, hey, what's the cash flow? not what's the adjusted earnings because they're backing out stock-based comp. They're backing out- Stop right there for a second. This is a big issue. It's a big issue. Stock-based comp is a big issue. It's a bigger issue than people think. And when they start to look- coming center stage. So They really do. So hold on, Porter. I'm going back to you in a second. Vinny, you talked about, oh, what can you be bullish on, whatever. That's going to be stripped out going forward because people will come after companies now for stock-based comp. What's the real number? Sorry, Porter, go ahead. And so you go back to why we like energy- still here, even though they might go down a little bit, but like the cash flows are there. But where does the S&P go? Because that's a small component of the S&P, unfortunately. I mean, it is. So. Listen, in a high inflationary environment, the PE is lower. So, you know, I don't pick a number, 20% lower? Vin? I'm going to pay homage to one of your other guests that come in here, David Rosenberg. Who, yeah, who, who didn't think inflation up. was real, but that's fine. Oh, okay. I, I, he's got to answer for Santino on that one. Yeah. But um, in that regard- <laughs> Yeah. He believes, still love him. He believes, I love him. That the S and P can go to three thousand to thirty two hundred. That's my so that's so my so. I'm going to outsource that price target from him to me, and that makes sense to me. Like that's that's a big enough drop where I think you talk about then the equation of inflation versus recession really and and deflation of people's wealth and assets start to really start to equalize. Yep, and that's where I think the Fed sort of has to, not cut, I, I'm not sure if cut, but definitely potentially pivot. Oh, as you heard, as way, you heard a few you minutes ago, I'm going to win. Real Hold companies on. at real prices at that point, you know? As you heard a few minutes, I'm going to win another $5,000 from Dan because they will cut. And let me go to this because this is crucial. So the next question is about housing. I've been saying on this podcast for three, four months, housing has been the most rational sector. It's been the only sector that has priced in what was going to happen. The XHB. Stocks. The stocks. stocks. The stocks. stocks. Sorry. The stocks themselves, they're, and to me, you want to know what you can own coming out of a cycle? It's these stocks potentially if you can time it right. You're never going to time it perfectly. But that's not the question though, I hope. That's not the question. The question is, what's going to happen with housing here? I mean, we're we're still way away from peak in mortgage rates, I think. So to me on housing, I think that the simple answer is, I think home prices are going to stop going up and potentially go down. And we're talking five to 10%, but I don't think to use that word, it's a Steve Eisman word. A calamity. I don't think it's going to be a calamity, but I think it's going to be, and I actually think it's going to be extremely healthy. I believe Bill Pulte spoke about this during the spaces, Yes, which is it would actually be beneficial for the younger generation to have lower home prices so they could actually afford the stuff that they want to buy. It's not the end of the world. And I, and I don't believe it's going to be the end of the world for the banking system either. They're not as levered as they were, and they're not even as levered to the housing market. Now, on the one hand, that might be bad for BlackRock and Blackstone, but that's a different issue. So I think the housing market's going to be negative. And this gets back to a point that we were saying training, right? So one of the things we are training are on the home builders, just to give an example. So if you look at Dr. Horton, which is the creme de la creme, that and probably Toll Brothers of the home builders. And if you look at the, the range, the historic range of, of, of Horton, it troughs at either 1.5 times tangible book value if we're not in a recession or tangible book value if we are in a recession. So we're not there yet. But now I know my guidelines of where I want to buy the best home builder when I think 
it hits a certain valuation level, getting back to S&P 3000 or 3200, where I might go to you guys thinking back at Seawolf and saying, guys, Horton, 90% of book value, we can't go wrong here. Now, you guys will probably yell at me, tell me to go F myself, but, but it's probably a decent price where you could start thinking about buying it. I go back to a complete misallocation of capital. You know, post the, the GFC, we didn't build any homes because the, the banks weren't lending. The three of us went out and went to get a construction loan to build a house. They wouldn't give it to us right now. And so the supply of homes is not there. That said, there was a lot of froth at the top. And there was a lot of investor speculation that said, oh, we're going to keep speculating. And the problem is, the on the investor side, the cap rates that people assumed for the exit is now going to be a lot higher than, than they thought it was. And so that investor you know, drumbeat of which demand- Which has been driving the demand for housing. Which has been driving. And, and so that, I think, they, 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 they clipped at the- Let me just, for people out there that- don't know what a cap rate is. So if you take the value of something, let's call it a million dollars, and you're charging rent of $10,000 a month, which would be $120,000 on a million, that'd be a 12% cap rate. We've been at three, four, 5% cap rates. As you look at those comparisons versus treasuries on risk-free yields, as treasuries move higher, you're required to offer a higher return. Therefore, if you're levered, hang with me here, guys, in commercial real estate, and you're levering out at a cap rate of 3 to 4%, Vinny, correct me if I'm wrong, and you're two to three times levered, you have a real problem. You have to readjust your pricing. So you can do one of two things. You can raise your rent, or you can devalue your building. Either way, you got to get cap rates to a normalized level relative to what you can get risk-free in the market. So that's a great place to end, and I think it's a great place to start to think about what the Fed has created and, the, and has mass in terms of picking bonds, picking stocks, and that's where we're going to be. And there's going to be great opportunities in both. And so with that, guys, but it yes, goes, but it goes back, you know, it goes back to, sorry, one, one quick here. Oh, I was wrapping it. Uh, sorry. That's right. But the structural problem is that in the United States, the reference rate is a 10-year treasury. It's a benchmark on the U.S. We have huge structural deficit. The Fed, for now, is doing QT. And so there's not a lot of real buyers of all this debt. And th- this is the part that, that gets me bearish. And they said, like, oh, let's just wait a bit, right? Let's just wait a bit and see how housing shakes out when, you know, don't need to, to rush in. You know, let's just wait and see what happens, right? A- as we reprice interest rates higher, that's what's going to happen. So we're talking about pricing risk differently. And that is the, how we wrap this up because it's the one thing for the last 13 years that we haven't had to address is pricing risk. And that's where we are. So guys, great to be with you. Cate- you know, Maybe fortunate or that it were a day like today or unfortunate for some people that we got together today. We will let everybody know the next time we plan to get together so they can buy S&P puts that expire because they have daily S&P puts now. We can expire that day. But we'll have you guys back again. It was great being with you guys. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.